Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. I'm George Marie, the program manager for writing at Centrum. Since 1974, Centrum has presented a vibrant lecture and reading series at the Port Townsend Writers' Conference at Fort Worden State Park in Port Townsend, Washington, the traditional lands and waters for the Coast Salish people. Vital to our mission to strengthen our literary craft and our community, to connect with each other across vast distances and from around the world, we offer this archival collection of recordings, beginning from the inception of the Writers' Conference to today. Please enjoy. Welcome to Readings and Lectures from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. This recording features William Pitt Root's craft lecture from the 1979 conference. Learn more about the Port Townsend Writers' Conference and listen to more readings and lectures at centrum.org. This is supposed to be a craft lecture. Instead, it's going to be something of a craft stew. Uh, I'm going to give you various ingredients. I'm not going to attempt to give you the recipe. Uh, what I'll be doing is a variety of things. I'll be reading some notes that I kept in notebooks years and years ago. I'll be reading you a few short poems. I'll be showing you two films, short films, based on poems of mine. And, uh, and I'll read you one long poem in which craft is very much an issue and in which the issue is far from settled at this point. It opened by reading this anonymous poem called This is the Key of the Kingdom. This is the key of the kingdom. In that kingdom is a city. In that city is a town. In that town there is a street. In that street there winds a lane. In that lane there is a yard. In that yard there is a house. In that house there waits a room, in that room an empty bed, and on that bed a basket, a basket of sweet flowers, of flowers, of flowers, a basket of sweet flowers. Flowers in a basket, basket on the bed, bed in the chamber, chamber in the house, house in the winding lane, lane in the broad street, street in the high town, town in the city, city in the kingdom. This is the key of the kingdom, of the kingdom. This is the key. I'm the kind of person who has had the experience, I think it's not at all uncommon or unique, of being told from time to time that uh, at first people feel like they know me, and then after they get to know me, they feel like they don't know me. <laughs> if upon being asked what kind of a person you are, you were to respond by presenting the asker with a list of all the foods you've eaten, all the drinks you've drunk, all the air you've breathed over the past seven years, it would be an honest enough answer in the vegetable courts of heaven but it would produce only puzzlement here, now. 
So to satisfy, we must make up satisfactory human words and give them over into the human ears of the other. To ask an artist what he was thinking, what he was doing, on the day he wrote such and such a poem, cast such and such a bronze, is to invite a barrage of internal monologue relevant to everything but the bronze, the poem. And if a list of one's diet would account for athletic feats that followed, or casting of teeth and tonsils would account for the voice that sang the song. From the stem to the blossom is a mystery, and a mystery is not known, but is accomplished merely, and is observed or unobserved to equal effect. Poem, based on Lu Chai uh, from the Mustard Seed Garden Manual of Painting, Japanese. Instructions concerning the painting of an orchid. The brush must never be slow. Its quick stroke is appropriate. Such is made with elbow raised, heart light, and an eye grown keen. The blowing orchid flutters. Its waving leaves and stem resemble the tail of a soaring phoenix. Light as a dragonfly teeters calyx. In full bloom, the orchid stands erect and faces upward. Do not neglect the stem. Remember that its stance without the blossom is rigid. A master's stroke will hint this posture, not with curves, but with a curving straightness, as wind moves not the flower, but its weight. In ancient China, a part of the craft of a painter uh, consisted in his health. Uh, this is directly evident in the kinds of paints that he used. Very often, the ingredients for the paint, for instance, involved as a binder, the earwax of the painter. Apparently, earwax is a dead giveaway to the state of physical health. Uh, any kind of ailment is going to affect the consistency of the earwax, and anyone experienced in looking at paintings can tell from the texture of the paint the state of health of the painter. In talking about craft today, some of my, my remarks are going to be uh, general in, in this sense that uh, it seems to me there is, of course, the craft of the art, and there is also the craft of the person who is the artist, that these things are not, as Yeats has suggested, separable, but indeed may be inseparable, making your life, making your living, making your art. Craft means combination of two things, strength and cunning. Strength and skill, excuse me, not cunning, strength and skill. If you have enough strength, you don't need skill. Nobody has enough strength. <laughs> From Wei Tai, 11th century, poems of the late Tang Dynasty, Poetry presents the thing in order to convey the feeling. It should be precise about the thing and reticent about the feeling. For as soon as the mind responds and connects with the thing, the feeling shows in the words. This is how poetry enters deeply into us. If the poet presents directly feelings which overwhelm him and keeps nothing back to linger as an aftertaste, he stirs us superficially. He cannot, however, start the hands and feet involuntarily waving and tapping in time 
far less strengthen morality and refine culture, set heaven and earth in motion, and call up the spirits. There's a uh, Sufi teaching tale, which I mentioned at one point in my class, regarding craft. I don't remember the names of the people involved, uh, but the tale, kind of a little parable, goes roughly like this. Uh, a seeker along the way wanted very much to study with a certain master, found him, made his request, and the master said, first you'll have to apprentice yourself to a, a friend of mine. And the seeker eagerly said, of course, I'd be glad to do that. The friend was a pot maker. Uh, the seeker went and apprenticed himself to the pot maker, and for the first few weeks kept his eye on everything, figuring that there was going to be some secret that he was going to miss if he didn't keep alert. The weeks passed, the months, and the years. And after four years, the seeker lost patience and finally approached the master and said, look, uh, what's going on here? I came to you to learn about truth, not to learn about making pots. Uh, the master's response was to the effect, this effect, you say you want to learn truth. Let me, let me put you a riddle. What's the best way to boil water? And the seeker said, well, you put it in a pot and you, and you boil it. And the master said, yes, you put it in a pot and you boil it. That's not the most direct way to heat the water, though. The most direct way would be to throw the water directly onto the fire. But in that case, you would put the fire out and you would defile the water all in the same stroke. Come back in another four years. question I think sometimes you might wisely ask in, re in reading any author, to whom and to what does the writer subordinate himself or herself? Short poem called Vice Verse. Tight stuff that squeezes the bullshit out but leaves the gut. Alistair Crowley once said in Magic and Theory and Practice made this fairly interesting remark. In a work of practical magic, these methods may be advantageously combined. On the one hand, infinite frankness and readiness to communicate all secrets. And on the other, the sublime and terrifying knowledge that all real secrets are incommunicable. A poem called Apologia Maybe. These blocks and dots of color, these angles for noses, slashes for mouths, words for ideas, all are out and out lies, are they not? Yet, short of grafting live flesh onto the page, spirit onto the air, what else have we to make those mistakes which render us intelligible? It is in our translations of such error that we appear most as ourselves, our O's for eyes widening or squinting closed, our mouths softening like plums or snapping shut like jackknives in response to the least common denominators, those worldly communications 
those worldly communions which are our art. Uh, the first film tonight, which I'll show you after I read you one more poem. Well, I better read you the poem first. This poem is called Sumo Wrestler. This poem directly engages the idea of crafting the body. I picked sumo wrestler rather than uh, samurai or, or zazen sitter or some other form because sumo happens to involve the combination of, of indulgence and discipline at the same time, uh, which intrigues me a lot. Usually where one is disciplined, that's pretty much it. Everything is disciplined in the case of the sumo wrestler uh, because of the nature of the conflict he's about to enter on. Apparently they eat on the average of eight pounds of fresh meat a day. Uh, they almost require a national endowment for the arts just to support their diets. Uh, they're of course in rigid training at the same time as they're constantly feeding themselves to create bulk. Uh, poems called Sumo Wrestler. Barreled in muscle, cat-eyed, huge, charged with the calm central to a storm. He lives a ritual feast of gorgeous energies. All that he has, he shares with the silent presence who validates each meal in the void of famine, generates with each muscle the vision of his own fly-brightened bones, appointing his smile with a signifying edge of a pride quick to kill gestures of vanity. Aware of his body, like a garden hung on racks of bone, whose veins are vines that redden through the beating lungs and brain that blossom from the spine, aware of the closed circuitry of blood. The warrior feasts on knowing, knows, and lives. His lungs inspire and translate into power each fatal breath of air. At war with time, his will wins hour by hour until the years win from his body such an instant grace that eyes able to see him move see through the trance of time as through a dream one man awake. One last snatch from my notebooks before I show you this film. Uh, the problem of will, it seems to me, is, is very directly involved in what we're doing here, talking about craft. Uh, I think everybody knows you're not going to pick up any rules, well, for me, certainly, but probably not from anyone, that you can then go and mechanically apply to your art, to your writing. Uh, this is not a crafted object, this plastic cup. And it's made according to very clear rules from which there is very little variation. Uh, if followed correctly, you produce a product but it's hardly a crafted product. Uh, there are rules of thumb that a potter follows of a kind very different from these kinds of rules. They require intelligence of a human kind. Uh, one comes to hear sometimes informational lectures anyway, hoping to learn something that you can put to a direct use to get a tool. I think that's impossible. Uh,
true change is precipitated probably in a state of willlessness such as the deepest unhappiness or the highest ecstasy can induce. In the one case, defenses have been dropped because they've been proven ineffective. While in the other, defenses have been sensed as unnecessary. The rights of aboriginals, American Indians for instance, almost always include the stripping away of every interference between ego and other in order that a vision be accomplished which transcends the selfish and unreal motive. One wants to become a man, but if you have the power to, uh, to say, well, this is what a man is before you're a man, and to define yourself, you're still obviously shaped within the boundaries of your own knowledge, which does not constitute an extension of any kind, does not constitute really an initiation, a joining with something besides yourself. The world from which man has come enters the world which man has made only when an individual truly sees with his eyes other than what he is capable of projecting. And the individual is never the same again. His seal is broken, and his temper, his soul, tempered by the immersion in his source. Atonement, mentioned this once before, sin is uh, a deviation from the center, is a missing of the mark, is a separation from what is central. And atonement is a coming together of the parts again, returning to a source and original feeling. I think craft is very much a part of, of this process because we're not crafting poems, we're crafting our sensibility in the form of poems. Uh, will, as such, I believe is destructive because it purposely limits possibility. It considers only what it already knows and when it wants to act, it acts not to preserve a sacred bond between man and his spirit, but acts rather to continue the separation of self from the other only more successfully by empowering itself in the presence of the other. Our entire technology, it seems to me, is such an empowerment, a lack of trust in the universe and an attempt to manipulate and control it. This can lead us to such a false place as if you had suddenly enlightenment in an airplane, uh, or if you had enlightenment under, under the water 50 feet with, with scuba diving gear, and you decided to get rid of, of your trappings, uh, you couldn't do it. You can't step out of that airplane. You can't step out of that aqualung. You die, you need the trappings. To a certain extent, I think, making crafts, conscious crafting in, in an exploration such as poetry is, at times puts us in this position of going out farther than we really go, that we're armored in a way by ideas. From this armor, if we look out, we see things that we haven't seen before, notice things we haven't noticed before. If we're lucky, then we can make our way back next time without that extra help, perhaps. The film I'm going to sh show you right now, Q, <laughs> is uh, called The Woman and the Butterfly Man. It derives from a, a Maidu Indian myth. Uh, to cut it kind of short, because it's too beautiful a day, it's been a great deal of time inside, I think. The original myth, apparently, was a, was a warning myth and the warning was a pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty flat-footed one, warning women in particular not to be unfaithful to their husbands. Uh, fortunately, when I heard the story, I didn't know that the moral that was supposed to be tacked to the end. I found the, the action of the poem absolutely fascinating. It seemed to me perfectly clear that it was, in, in one sense, uh, a study, a survey of, of fulfillment of a person who is entirely spontaneous in her actions, and in, in that sense, innocent. I think spontaneity involves very really a kind of innocence. Uh, in putting together the, the poem, I had no idea that it would eventually be a film. Uh, I wanted very much to leave it 
at the end of the at the end of the the poem at the end of the story i was in a state of something like awe rather than judgment of the person about whom the, the story revolves the filmmaker was someone i didn't know when the film was made i was absolutely overwhelmed that he had done a much better job with the film than i had been able to do with the poem uh, it's called song of the woman and the butterfly man the tribe is a mighty tribe of northern california uh, I don't think I really have to say anything more than that, except maybe I'll mention this. When I wrote the poem, I very much had the sense of wanting to make it a, a tellable tale, a singable tale, a song, if you will, uh, that could be shared widely, that didn't require you having had 12 years of, of uh, elementary education of some kind you know, to make it out. Uh, there are refrain lines cast throughout it to try and give a sense of some kind of oral thing. This is in no way an imitation of, the in, of an Indian method. It's in a kind of an approximation of... of ballad forms that I was aware of. No rhyme, just a kind of a minimal thing to create a sense of continuity. Okay.
woman, following and running now, swift as a doe, removed her clothing one by one, moving away as they fell, sinking into the shaken grasses, clouds of pollen golden where she ran. Here, the woman, running through the valley, found the butterfly waiting, found it vivid, and it was a warrior now, found the dark center of her bones, empty, and filled it with his shining where she lay. she lay, she rose, still in his arms, as he turned, saying, hold here as we go, his hand showing hers the place, or your spirit will be lost. Now the woman was happy, and did as she pleased, while they flew. While they flew, she held the sea of shone, and she was not ashamed, naked to the eyes of the sky. And the sun looked and saw, and moon and stars looked and saw, and the day passed, and the night passed, and she held. Here the woman walked over the earth among the nights and days. Beautiful clothes upon her skin, beautiful skin upon her bones. And from the center of her bones had the child sprung, whom she carried with her over the earth. 
Here the woman walked over the earth, and the grasses bloomed underfoot behind her, and rivers ran, shining with quick light, wakened by her grace. And the child was happy where she walked. Here the woman walked over the earth, and entering a valley, she saw the butterfly rising, falling, and flowering grasses, and skimming the river, its beauty disturbing her where she walked. Here the woman walking in the valley followed the butterfly, followed faster, laid the child down in shade to follow the butterfly over long green grasses across the river splashing where she ran. Here, the woman, following, running now swift as a doe, removed her clothing one by one, moving away as they fell, sinking into the shaken grasses, clouds pollen golden where she had. Here, the woman, running through the valley, found the butterfly waiting, found it vivid, and it was a warrior now who found the dark center of her bones empty and filled it with this shining where she lay. Where she lay, she rose, still in his arms. As he turned, saying, hold here as we go, his hand showing her the place, or your spirit will be lost. Now the woman was happy and did as she pleased while they flew. While they flew, she held as he had shown, and she was not ashamed, naked to the eyes of the sky. And the sun looked and saw, and moon and stars looked and saw, and the day passed, and the night passed, and she held. Woman held, and she was not ashamed to be available to the grasses at the entries of the water and the protests of the air. And then she saw far below her, everywhere, everywhere, the wheel of the butterflies, and she fell. And she fell through a valley of the sky, whose floor was the flow endlessly of butterflies turning and returning, opening her eyes to the shining, opening her eyes to the shining that opens forever around her and opens her and opens, opens.
Let me mention something here about, about uh, so how these stories were told. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this. It, it dawned on me when Gary was reading the epic the other night, and we were sitting here, and, and it got long. Whether you're enjoying it or not, I think it got long for most of us anyway. Uh, one of the reasons was that when the epics are being recited, when long stories are being recited, and under original conditions, you know, by the people who were, for whom they were originally intended, they were constantly being interrupted by the audience. Uh, this happens to be a story which apparently was very frequently interrupted with all kinds of body remarks by whoever was present. Uh, men, women, children, all were listening to the story, and people would make all kinds of cracks of one kind or another. Uh, it was a participatory sport. It wasn't, you know, you didn't have to just sit there and keep your mouth shut. Uh, and that would, you know, that would liven it up and make the time pass a whole lot faster. <laughs> I might encourage you to do that with my lecture, too, by the way. <laughs> It's one thing that I think we tend to lose a lot uh, in, in movies and TV. In TV, we don't exactly, actually, because most of us watch TV with kind of half an eye anyway, and talking and doing all kinds of other stuff. But we can engage with, with the actors. We can engage with what's going on on the screen, so we engage with each other. And it makes for a strange, I think, a strange kind of separation, sense of separation. One of the places where we can engage pretty directly with the participants, perhaps more than any place else, is in, in con rock concerts. Not classical music, but rock concerts, you know, where you can, if, there's, if you're lucky, you know, there's rooms to dance and so on. Woodstock, the whole thing. Uh, This is a, more or less a, a ripoff from Kierkegaard, who begins, I think, volume two of Either Or with a, an incredible story which clearly sets the tone for him of what, of what art is, uh, what it can be, I should say. I tried to make a poem of it. I don't think the poem is altogether successful, so I'm going to give you a little bit of the background. It's a short poem. Uh, it was this, that there was a, a Roman emperor who was particularly clever, particularly cunning, and particularly cruel. And at one point he had uh, to get rid of, of people who were causing trouble in his dominion. This incredible brazen bull created by his smiths. Into this brazen bull he would place dissidents, what we now call dissidents. And the peculiar and hard thing about this bull was that it had an internal plumbing, which was rather like that of a tuba. Inside the belly of the creature would be the prisoner. Underneath the belly of the creature would be a fire, which would be lit. And when the man in, or the woman, whoever, usually men in this case, were, were burned, cooked, as it were, in the belly of the bull, their cries would be transformed by the tubing into sweet music. This is called the king's music. Because he is oblivious to a king in a land the king rules, because he has offended a king. Now the ruler's smiths have fashioned for him a huge brazen bull, crafted ingeniously to contain upon the floor of its belly, above the gradual fire, one man, naked, crouching. And wound through the monster's throat runs a hollow, instrumental to the man's breathing. It will further serve to flute the bitter cries of his last burning, 
through lengths of gold and silver tube, so subtly tuned that of these cries is made the sweetest music. Strip him, give him to the bull. The king tonight is restless and would warm his hands at the fire and by the conversions of an enemy be soothed. Freud, of course, came up with all kinds of parallels in the artistic temperament of, uh, of turning conflict into art, of turning struggle of a rather bitter kind sometimes into into example of beauty of, of one kind or another. Uh, I think I'm going to skip most of the rest of my notes here and, and read you a poem, which I'm reading to you not because I think it succeeds, but because I think it comes close. Uh, I think it's an interesting poem. It's a poem in which, for me, I've had to try at least harder than any other poem I've ever written to control what's going on in it with some kind of craft or other. Uh, I think there are, obvious, I think there are parts of it that work, and I think there are, are some things, or certainly something, about it that doesn't work. By work, I mean simply it doesn't contain fully, doesn't fully transmute uh, the experience. For some people, for some people I think it does. It does for me, for instance, at this point, uh, or I wouldn't read it, but I, I, dare, I definitely trust my audiences, and uh, I have found that, that, that it doesn't seem to be so satisfactory sometimes for audiences. It's called Fire Clock. It derives from a dream uh, that I one time had. The dream was something of a nightmare. Uh, in the poem, I'm not trying just to capture a nightmare, I'm trying to... The dream ends long before the poem does. And I tried to build into the poem a resolution of some kind for the forces that were at work in the nightmare itself. I tend to think of, of a great many nightmares as simply aborted dreams. The dreams didn't go on long enough. We didn't figure out the way, didn't figure the way out, and for because of anxiety, we awoke before we had a chance to resolve the thing. Uh, and, I, and as someone said, I think it was Borges says that, well, that writing is a waking dream. Uh, working with some very young kids one time, I found it was very successful. Uh, I've been working with middle-class white kids. You know, write a poem about your dream, basically. And they would write these wonderful poems. They're really excited about it. That was in the morning. In the afternoon, I went over to a black school and gave the same assignment. And the kids were equally enthusiastic about doing it. And when they sat down to do it, the temperature in the room fell about 10 degrees and all kinds of kids. It looked like somebody breathed poison gas into the room. They began wilting, heads falling on the table, got really restless. I went around to see what was happening and started reading some of the poems. And there were nightmares. There were nightmares. There were nightmares about being hungry. There were nightmares about being abandoned. There were nightmares about being murdered. They were horrid. These are kids in the sixth grade. Uh, when I realized what was happening, to try and save it from total catastrophe at that point, uh, with one boy I found he'd, I don't want to get too long about this, but he'd, he'd written down on the page, I dreamt I was flying in the sky and then I fell. And his head was on the table and I asked him what was happening and asked him what the dream had been. And each time, he tried just to tell me what he'd just written down. Well, I, I dreamed I was flying, and I fell out of the sky, and I felt really sad. I finally got him to tell me the whole dream. Each time he told it, he told it in more detail. And finally, this was a dream he told, that he was flying through the sky, which is, by the way, a, uh, a shaman dream. He had a sword in his hand. In the distance, he saw a speck. As the speck came closer, he realized it was a bear. As the bear came closer, he realized it was his duty to kill the bear with the sword. 
As the bear came closer, he saw the bear was sad that it was going to be killed. He dropped his sword, and when he dropped his sword, he lost his power and fell from the sky. Wonderful dream. Uh, in writing, then I had him, I said, okay, now you've told me all these particulars. Would you please write them down and see, you know, as he was telling it, he was getting excited, he was getting back into the dream. And I asked him to write it down, and I asked him then, I had to kind of give him something to, I felt I had to give him something to go on with past where his dream had stopped. So I said, what I'd like to have you do, Mark, is I'd like to have you find the sword that you dropped. And I want you to tell me what that sword has turned into when you find it. And I also assured him that I thought his dream was, what he'd done was a good thing, not killing a bear when he'd seen it sad and so on. Very enthusiastically, he went back down. He wrote down basically the dream he'd had. And then at the end of the poem, what he discovered, I had everybody in class do this, and what, what he discovered was he said, when I found, and when I found my sword, it had turned into a porcupine friend of mine. <laughs> it didn't dawn on me until later that there's no more perfect marriage probably of sword and bear than the porcupine. You know, it was an incredible, incredible image that, he, that he'd come on. This poem then is called Fire Clock. Waking to the iron dark length of a train from the dream where I am born into a void over and over, I find the blinds are shut, the air is stuffed and gray. I flick a glowing switch. The ticket printed on my hand says I'm going back. Going back, I don't know where. Everyone must be asleep. I smell breath in the air, feel heavy round wheels glide on moonlit track, racket in my belly, agitation in my bones. I want to see the moon and notice now how every blind is padlocked. I want to see the moon. I step out, the aisle shines, all curtains are drawn as far as I can see. I fold one corner of mine in and I begin. Late, I know it's late, but I cannot find a clock this kind of lights forever. Machines make it that never sleep. I listen to the wheels riding on moonlight. Moon, moon, do you have the time? I'm going back. I don't know where. I wait, nothing. I listen, nothing. Moon says nothing, and I start to walk. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The program manager for writing at Centrum is George Marie. Centrum's executive director is Robert Berman. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, artists in residence, and interviews with teaching artists. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening.
This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation.